All right. So, we've been in the book of Matthew, and uh, that's where we're going to continue. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And uh, it's interesting as we go into Matthew chapter 12, we just finished, obviously, Matthew chapter 11. Uh, but as we consider that, um, there is a link here that we can't miss. And uh, Pastor Justin referred to it last week, and he talked a little bit about rest and how Sabbath relates to that idea as we finish chapter 11. Uh, but today, we're going to look at chapter 12 and see how it even relates to what we just saw in chapter 11. So before we even get to our passage today, I want to remind you uh, of what we've been looking at through the book of Matthew, and then I'm going to read a few verses from chapter 11 to get us back into the thinking of where Jesus is going to be going this morning as we see some interesting stories come about and we see some opposition begin from the Pharisees, not even begin, but continue. And so, uh, we are going to start by just remembering that the book of Matthew, if you've been with us, the book of Matthew, Jesus brings the heavenly kingdom to earth, that's the theme. Jesus brings the heavenly kingdom to earth. He is the rightful king. He is the Messiah. He is the one that has come to set all things right. He is the one that has come to forgive sins and to one day restore everything. Now, at this point, he's bringing the heavenly kingdom to earth. It's not going to be fully realized till he comes again. But Jesus in Matthew is very clear as he preaches, as he teaches, and what we're going to see as he does certain things shows that he indeed is the new the the new king the davidic king that was foretold through the old testament and he indeed is bringing the heavenly kingdom to earth not a physical kingdom but this is a kingdom that he is bringing where he is going to rule over all and so throughout the book of matthew jesus is both teaching with authority with the authority of a king he's been teaching and he's been showing his authority over everything He's been doing that through miracles. He's been doing that through miraculous uh, events that he is orchestrating and that he is doing because he is showing that the message that he's preaching is true. And there's been some incredible things that we've seen him do, and we're going to continue to see that theme today. So in chapter 11, as I mentioned, Jesus did some teaching, and now in chapter 12, he's going to back up his teaching with what he's going to do. And first of all, what his disciples are going to do and then what he'll do himself. But if we remember, at the end of chapter 11, I just want to read the last few verses here, starting in verse 25. And uh, it says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then we saw in verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Pastor Justin shared about what true rest is all about. It's a restful work as we work for Jesus. And he talked about rest, and then and Jesus here is making it very clear that those who want to find true rest will need to find it in him and him alone. And we'll also remember that he's referring, as he talks about the heavy laden, those who labor and heavy laden, that Jesus is saying, no longer do you have to labor, no longer. You don't have to believe that somehow you can, you can strive to enter 
the, the eternal life, strive to enter a relationship with God. There's, it's new and different, and there is true rest to be found, and the, obeying the law and feeling the weight of having to obey not only the law, but all the other things that the Pharisees added on to the law. That's no longer what is going to be, that you're gonna to have to strive for. Instead, we strive for, to know Jesus, who will give us His yoke that is easy and His burden is light. So Jesus taught that, and now we get to see immediately Matthew starts telling us about two stories, two things that happened that actually are just physical proof, basically, of what Jesus just talked about, that real rest, true rest, only comes through Jesus himself and not through an outward obedience to the law. And so Jesus is going to say that, and now we're going to see these stories as Matthew brings them together. Now, he says at that time in the beginning of chapter 12, so uh, obviously this is all orchestrated together so that what Jesus is teaching is now what he's going to be showing. And so, as we get to this today, we are going to see a little bit more about rest. And we're going to see specifically today that Jesus teaches and proves his supremacy over the Sabbath. Jesus teaches and proves his supremacy over the Sabbath. And I'll say the Sabbath is the day that that Israel looked at as the seventh day that you needed to rest and keep holy. And that is in the Ten Commandments. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I'll say even beyond what then is happening here, we see that through the years, the Jewish people have added on all sorts of rules to make sure that nobody would actually do work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is going to show that he is the one who is ruling over even the Sabbath. See, the rulers of the day and the Pharisees of the day thought that they could be the ones to rule over the Sabbath. And they could be the ones to decide who does what and when and how. But Jesus is showing that he is in control and has authority over everything, including the Sabbath that they so desperately cling to. So we're going to look at today, through this passage, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, we're going to be looking at it as kind of a, uh, I like, when I was reading it, for some reason, my mind went to like a court case. Like, where there's going to be an accusation, there's going to be a defense that's given, there's going to be evidence that's going to be seen, and then there's finally going to be a verdict that has come to. And so we're going to look at those four things in this passage, and we're going to see what happens and how Jesus defends himself to the accusation that he has, what evidence is seen, and then finally what not only is the verdict that the Pharisees come to, but what is the verdict that we should come to, and that's what we're going to look at today. But before we get to any of that, let us read the passage so we have a context of what's going on here as we look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And he, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? 
He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So this is what we see happening immediately after Jesus talks about finding rest in him. And we start right away and we see that there's a a new accusation that's being brought against Jesus. And here's what's happening. The accusation is this, that Jesus' followers are defiling the Sabbath law. The Pharisees are going to say that Jesus' followers are defiling the Sabbath law. And so how did they see this? Well, they see that Jesus' disciples are harvesting grain as they travel. So they're defiling the Sabbath because they're harvesting grain. So what the Pharisees are looking at, and by the way, this isn't about the fact that they were taking grain out of a random field. That was actually something that happened a lot. Old Testament actually put it out there that that was allowed. If you're on your travels, the, some of the grain would be left by the farmer at the edges of the path so that you could, so that weary travelers who were hungry could eat. And that's what Jesus' followers are doing as they are traveling through a grain field. They're traveling through and they're grabbing food and they're eating it. And so what really is being accused here is that they are harvesting. So they're doing work because they're taking grain and they're eating it. So therefore they're, they're reaping a harvest and then they're harvesting the food so that they can eat it. And so the Pharisees are upset. And it's also interesting to see that as the followers of Jesus are harvesting grain as they travel, the Pharisees are watching. The Pharisees are watching this happen. It leads some to believe that maybe the Pharisees were like, in the back with Jesus, like talking with him while the disciples are going ahead and started eating. I don't know exactly why they're watching. Were they doing it in public? Were they kind of being sneaky about it? I don't know, but the Pharisees at this point are worried about Jesus, and so they're watching what he's doing. They're looking to see what they can figure out about him. Some of them maybe want to know more about him. Some of them are just looking for a way to get at him, which they'll get by the end of these stories. But they're watching as the followers of Jesus harvest on the Sabbath. And so then again, the Pharisees do accuse Jesus of allowing the breaking of God's law. They accuse Jesus, and they've already accused Jesus of other things. Remember, they accuse him of his followers eating with sinners and tax collectors. And now he's, they're accusing his followers of breaking Sabbath law. And they're upset and they're saying, Jesus, how come your your followers are breaking the Sabbath? Why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? That's what they say. They are trapping and accusing Jesus here that he is not teaching his followers how to obey Sabbath. Well, let's go back to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus does give us this Sabbath law that we're even talking about right in the Ten Commandments. And we're going to go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And I want to read what is said about the Sabbath. Then we're going to talk a little bit about what the Pharisees did with this. And then we're going to talk about what the Pharisees are missing as they accuse Jesus here of breaking the Sabbath. Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
So this was what this this is where the Sabbath law originates. It comes from the Ten Commandments, talks about the fact that there are six days of work and one day of rest. And really, though, what I want us to make sure we see in this passage is it the emphasis here is yes, it says it need, there's no work to be done, but the emphasis is really about the purpose of why no work is to be done. The purpose of the Sabbath is to have a day that is holy. Set apart for God. A day that you take as an opportunity to not strive for your own self, but to reflect on and remember and know who God is. The whole purpose Sabbath has even started is because God himself rested on the seventh day. And the point here, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. It is a day that's supposed to be like no other day. It is a day that is supposed to be set apart from the other six. The point that God is making as he makes the Sabbath law is not about all the things that you can't or you should or shouldn't do on the Sabbath. It's the idea of let's stop working so that you can take some time to rest and know and respond to what God is doing and what he's already done. And so the point of the Sabbath was for it to be a holy day, a day to focus on and worship God. And yes, the way that they did this was by not by not working, but instead resting in the sense that they were able to not be distracted. That's the key here. Not be distracted by work so that they could keep the day holy. And so that's what the heart of the commandment is. Now, what the Pharisees have done is they have missed the point. The Pharisees, what they've started to do, and others at the time, they added all these, like, extra laws to the sabbath like they gave you this is how much work you can do this is how much work you shouldn't do they gave categories of what work was okay and what work wasn't and they made a whole list of things and basically what they were doing was okay we have the sabbath we're supposed to rest so what we need to do is do whatever we can to keep ourselves so far away from breaking this law that we'll make all these extra rules, we'll put all these fences up to make sure that we don't even get close to breaking this commandment. They're obsessed with making sure that they're obeying to the T, what is, and they don't want to take any chances. And so they have put out all of these things that you can and cannot do, and ensure, surely now the Pharisees have experienced a type of Authority that really is not theirs to carry and the authority that they're using is to say listen This is how sabbath needs to be observed And so jesus comes in the scene and his his followers are start picking the grain from the grain fields And so this is not this according to the pharisees. This is not obeying what the bible says and so They have missed the point Sabbath rest wasn't just about resting from doing anything and everything. It wasn't about how important it was to lay on the couch all day. Well, in their case, I guess it wouldn't have been a couch, whatever they would have lounged on. It was a day that was about setting apart for God, for God's good and God's purpose, for holiness. And they had added so much to the Sabbath just to make sure they wouldn't break it. But in doing that, they actually made Sabbath something it wasn't meant to be. They actually made Sabbath something that wasn't restful any longer, but Sabbath had now become a burden. Just think about how opposite what they've done. Jesus, God says, you know, set aside a day to be, to not be distracted, to not work, to rest, to focus on me, to set apart this day for me and my glory. And God sets that apart, and then the Pharisees go in and they say, you know, you gotta obey all these all these different things, and if you don't, then you're breaking the law. And all of a sudden, they have taken what was meant to be restful 
and what was meant to focus on God, and now they've taken it into something that is going to actually be a burden and a weight onto people. They have made the Sabbath a burden. They have not made the Sabbath what God meant it to be, and so they're missing the whole point. And Jesus is about to expose all of that and break it all down. Here's the illustration today, as you see the title of snack time, What, why that would be here. Well, yes, they're snacking on grain, okay, that's part of this. But I was thinking about what the Pharisees are really doing here. And if this helps you maybe understand what they're doing, how many of you, uh, you don't have to tell me, but probably many of you, as if you're a parent, have told your kid at one time or another, okay, it's snack time, but make sure you don't eat too many snacks because you'll ruin your appetite. Or, or maybe uh, it might be junk food. Don't, okay, here's a little bit of junk food, but don't ruin your appetite by eating too much junk food. Uh, so actually, one thing that happens, so you're, you might say that to your kids, like, here's the snacks, don't fill up on the snacks, dinner is coming, when dinner comes, you better be hungry, so don't eat too much. Don't fill up on the snacks, it's not worth it. Wait for the meal, it's better. Actually, adults even do this. Uh, I learned this a couple years ago. Catering businesses know what they're doing. When a catering business sets up a buffet, uh, what they'll do is they'll put like all the appetizers and like the salad and all the stuff that is good but not the main course, and they'll put that first. So people will fill their plates with that stuff, and then the main course that's the most expensive thing, so the caterers want to save some money, the most expensive thing is at the end of the buffet, but by the time you get there, your plate is already so full that you don't have as much room as you'd like to put the entree on, so you end up taking less entree. And then what happens in some cases is people, uh, or maybe you've been a type of person, I've done this before, going to a restaurant where they give you free bread. Oh, how nice it is that they give you free bread. But what it is, but then you eat all the bread, and by time, like I, I'm thinking of a steakhouse that I go to, I eat all the bread, and then the steak comes, and I'm too full to eat the steak. It's like, then I don't enjoy the steak as much. I'm going on a rambling rampage right now. But as we think about all of these things, like the point I'm trying to make is what the Pharisees are doing is they're concentrating on the appetite and the snacks, and they're completely forgetting about the main course. It's almost like they're coming to a meal, and they order appetizers, they order a salad, and then they eat it all up, and they say, this was so good, I'm just going to leave. I don't care about the main course that's coming. I don't care about the steak that's coming. That's not what's important. What's important is we need to make sure we have enough snacks. We have enough appetizers. See, the, the laws that they're trying to follow, not just the Sabbath, but all the things that they've added to the law, they're... The law itself is not bad, but it's not all that it's meant to be. It's not everything. Jesus is what is the whole law has been pointing to. Like that, all the appetizers and all the snacks, they point, they get you to the main meal. And Jesus is saying, in a sense, and I know this is not what he's saying, but this is what I, this is how my mind works. I see him looking at this, and it's like the Pharisees have settled for eating all the junk food or all the, the snacks and all the appetizers, they've settled and said, that's what's important. And they've de- completely neglected the actual meal. And in a sense, I believe that's what we sometimes can do too, where we get so caught up in all the do's and don'ts and all the questions and, and things that we have to figure out on how to live as a Christian, how to follow Jesus. We get so caught up in the little things that we forget to focus on Jesus himself. And I think the Pharisees have done this to an extreme sense, but I think we can also do the same. We'll talk more about that later. But the Pharisees really hear what they're doing is they are not, they are looking at the law and thinking, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. We're coming to the steakhouse and we're going to eat bread. 
But no, the truth of the matter is they're missing it and they're missing out. They're missing on what is best, the true rest, the true Sabbath. Indeed, Mark 2, 27 might get us to a place where we kind of figure out what's going on here a little bit more. And Jesus says, as he talks to the Pharisees about this very same event, says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The idea here is that the Pharisees have made the Sabbath about how man can serve the Sabbath. How can man live up to the Sabbath? How can we, in our own striving, fulfill the Sabbath? But Jesus is saying the Sabbath was made for man. The rest was made for us to be able to focus on God. That was the point. It was for us, not for us to have to be made for the Sabbath in the sense that the man... We need to make sure that we're not living to try to fulfill the Sabbath. The Sabbath was there for our good and not for our burden. And yet, they have added a burden to it. They have forgotten what is best. They have not even acknowledged what is best at this point. Spent too much on that first point. Let's go on to our second point. So the accusation. Jesus' followers are defiling the Sabbath law. The defense. Jesus says, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. That is verse 8. So this is his defense. His defense is, you guys have just accused my followers of disobeying the Sabbath. You've missed the point. I'm right here before you, and I am Lord of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath, and I am, it's, and I am the Sabbath. I am the rest that you need. And in order to get to this point, Jesus uses three examples of from the Old Testament to point out that he indeed is the Lord of the Sabbath and that the Pharisees are misunderstanding what the Sabbath is all about. So first of all, he uses the example of David. If you want to read this story, you can go to 1 Samuel 21. We're not going to go there this morning just because of time. But in 1 Samuel 21, we read the story of when David and a bunch of his uh, followers, they're running from King Saul, and they're on the run, and they're hungry, and they're famished, and honestly, almost to a point where they would die of starvation. And as they're traveling, as they're running away, and as they're hiding, they come to the place where Jesus is going to reference here. It says, Have you not read when David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests. David stops and he's hungry. He asks for bread from a priest and he asks for this bread. And even though it wasn't allowed for him to eat it, according to the technical, the, the, the technicalities of the law, that was, that bread was only for the priests. And that was ceremonial bread that was only meant to be for the priests. And yet, David and his followers at that point ate that bread and it was given to them by the priest. They ate it even though it wasn't meant for them to eat. Now, this isn't necessarily talking about the Sabbath, but Jesus here is making a point that all the little details of the law, there's something greater that is at work. And in this case, the one thing that's greater is that David needed to be spared, David needed to be fed, and there was hungry people that needed to be fed, and God did not condemn David for doing this. He could have because it was against the law, but there was a bigger purpose and a better purpose, and he's saying David was able to break the law and not be condemned for it. So that's his first example. So Jesus could do the same with his followers. And I don't think Jesus is is using David just randomly pulling it out of the air. 
We have to also think about the fact that all throughout Matthew and through the New Testament, we see Jesus is known as the son of David, the king who would follow in David's line. And it's interesting that he would bring up David and say, if David could do this, so can I. In a, in a way, what he's really doing here is he's referencing the fact that he is the son of David, referencing the fact that he's the Messiah, referencing the fact that he is even greater than David. And that's what he'll get to when he says at the end, he is Lord of the Sabbath. But then he also brings up the example of the priests. So basically, he says, if the priests are allowed to work on Sabbath as temple attendants, so Jesus and his followers could also be traveling. And remember what they're doing, they are doing religious work. They're spreading the gospel. And Jesus says, look, the priests were able to go into the temple and do all the temple work and technically profane the Sabbath, but are guiltless. The point here Jesus is making is, listen, if we're talking about the Sabbath, there are people that have always worked on the Sabbath. You have all these laws and you say people shouldn't work, but that's not true. Because the priests who always work on Sabbath, they are guiltless, and yet they technically are breaking the Sabbath that you are trying to hold up. Because according to their strict view of Sabbath and all the things they've added to it, he's saying it doesn't make any sense because the priests did this. Did this. The priests worked on the Sabbath, and yet they are guiltless. And then Jesus, so then Jesus in the midst of this says this, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. So why would he bring up temple after he just brings up priests? Well, the priests would serve in the temple. Remember what the temple was in the Old Testament is the symbol of the presence of God. It was the presence of God among his people. And Jesus is saying something greater than that is here. Something greater than the temple, and that is because Jesus himself is there. Jesus himself is the presence of God with people. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he's saying, something greater than the temple is here. It's me. So as the priest served in the temple, now my followers are serving me, and I am greater than the temple. And he's pointing that out. I don't think they're getting it, but that's what he's trying to say and get across. And then, not only does he give the example of David and the example of priests, which, by the way, might also be a way of Jesus subtly referencing the fact that he is the great high priest. Not only is he a king in the line of David, but also a priest, as we're told throughout the New Testament, one that would go between the people and God. But then he also doesn't even talk about David and the priest. Now he references and goes to the teaching of the prophets, specifically Hosea 6.6. And so he, refer- he references this and he quotes Hosea 6.6 6, where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is not the first time he's used this. He also used this phrase after he's accused of having his followers eating with sinners and tax collectors. He's reminding the Pharisees again that there is more to life than just a black and white following of every jot and tittle of the law and everything else that they've added to it. That sacrifice, when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the idea of the sacrifices he's talking about, the ritual sacrifice of the temple, the ritual sacrifice of the Jews. And he says, I desire mercy. Steadfast love, as Hosea 6 would say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That love and mercy are more. That's what is the pinnacle of what following the law is even really all about. Just think about the fact of how many times Jesus says the greatest commandment, love God, love others. 
And so again, Jesus references to the prophets, specifically to Hosea, and he says, God wants our hearts, not just our feeble obedience to laws. And God's heart is one of compassion and mercy. If we're to follow God and truly love him, then we will have have a heart of mercy and not just be obsessed with religious ritual so that we can somehow do all the right things to earn favor with God. He says, if you would have understood this, you would have not condemned the guiltless. In other words, if you would have understood what the, if you would have understood what the law is really all about, if you'd understand what God is really all about, God is not all about judging people on every little jot and tittle of everything that you think they should be obeying. That's not what God is about. God is about mercy and steadfast love. He's about a heart. He's about the heart. He's about love. He's about mercy. He's about all of these things and grace, grace and compassion. And as Jesus and his followers are going through this grain field, they are do, they are spreading the gospel, the good news. And yes, they're eating grain, but that is not the issue. There is no issue here. They are guiltless, according to Jesus. They are guiltless. And he says, why are they guiltless? For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, since my followers are following me and I am Lord of the Sabbath, I am over Sabbath, I created Sabbath, I am the one who who is the very rest that Sabbath is even pointing to. Jesus says, I, the Son of Man, is Lord, our Lord, am Lord of the Sabbath. That is his defense. So he uses the example of David and the priests and the prophets. It's interesting to know that Jesus throughout the New Testament is known as the King of Kings, the High Priest, and the Greatest Prophet. And so we see that he is priest, king, and prophet all at once. And I think he's even pointing to that as he's talking to these Pharisees. But his defense comes down to the very end. You cannot condemn what my followers are doing because they're following me, and I am Lord of the Sabbath. Your feeble attempt to obey all the laws that you have set up are not going to give you any favor, only through following me. So this is what happens as the defense happens, but then Jesus gives the Pharisees some evidence. And the evidence that he gives is that Jesus heals on the Sabbath. It's interesting, so they go on and enter a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, we read, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The first thing we see is that Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees. Right after this happens, Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees, and basically what they say is, hey, so are you going to heal on the Sabbath too? I mean, they're really putting it to him and basically waiting to see him do this, because now, not only will his followers have disobeyed the Sabbath law according to their thoughts, but now Jesus would as well. And so they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They're not really asking this as an honest question. Uh, They are simply looking for a way to accuse him. That's what it says in verse 10, so that they might accuse him. They're trying to get him to do something on Sabbath that they think is wrong, that is sinful. And so they ask him, hey, are you going to also heal on the Sabbath? Like, are you going to do this? Like, come on. And he said to them, which one has a sheep? So then he goes from their challenge, Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees, but now Jesus turns it around and he challenges the Pharisees back. He challenges the Pharisees with a common sense phrase. If you have a sheep and it falls into a pit, wouldn't you lift it out? And then he says, how much more value is a man than a sheep? Jesus is making a very clear point here. He's like, if you're so obsessed with following Sabbath, I know if one of your sheep were to fall off and get hurt and need to be picked up to be put back where they need to be to be healthy, you would do it. Because you wouldn't want to lose the sheep and you wouldn't want the sheep to suffer. And then he says, but how much more is a man worth than a sheep? And Jesus is making this very clear 
that doing good on the Sabbath is good, and doing good for men and healing on the Sabbath is good, and therefore is not a breaking of the Sabbath that they are claiming. So he says at the end of it, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Why would Jesus say this? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I think this gets back to the purpose of Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath is not just for lounging around and doing nothing. It is a day for doing good and giving glory to God. That's what Jesus is saying. He's making it very clear. As he heals this man with the withered hand, which, by the way, the man wasn't going to die from this condition, so Jesus could have waited till the next day, but he didn't because he wanted to make a point. He wanted to make it obvious that he is Lord of the Sabbath and he's going to heal on the Sabbath because doing good for the glory of God is not a breaking of Sabbath law as the Pharisees would like everyone to think, but instead this is a way to do good and to honor the Sabbath is by doing good for people, by having mercy and love and compassion. And so Jesus says that. He says that to them and challenges them and then he does good on the Sabbath. He says it and then he does it. And he says in verse 13, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. So Jesus has made his defense. Jesus has proven his power over Sabbath. And the fact that he is the Sabbath. He is the son of man and the Lord of the Sabbath. And then we see the verdict. So the first verdict we see is that the Pharisees decide he's guilty of sin. The Pharisees condemn Jesus' actions. How do we know that? Well, it's pretty obvious, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. So they see what he did, and they think it's wrong. They accuse him of sin, and they start to conspire. Not only do they conspire against him, but what they're conspiring to do is that the Pharisees are going to seek to destroy Jesus. It says it right here, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, at this point, were they thinking death? Maybe. Were they thinking of destroying him in other ways and destroying his reputation? Maybe. I have a feeling it was all of the above. Whatever it was going to take, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. Whatever it would take, they wanted to get rid of Jesus because in their mind, he was disobeying God, and more importantly, he was disobeying them and challenging their authority because he is the ultimate authority and they couldn't handle it. And so they want him destroyed. They want him gone. And one day, they would think they'd get their way. One day, as they try him, they will try him for blasphemy and breaking the Sabbath and being a sin, sinner. And they would do all that and they would condemn him and he would die. But we know the end of the story is he didn't stay dead. He rose again, defeating sin and death for all time. So they tried to destroy him, but no one could because he's Jesus. He's the son of man. Ultimately, though, as we see the verdict that the Pharisees come to, we need to come to our own verdict. Our own verdict that we need to come to is that we need to understand and see a picture of Jesus' supremacy. Jesus' ultimate authority, his supremacy over all things. Jesus, as the Lord of all, is also Lord of the Sabbath. True rest is only found in following him. True rest is only found in following Jesus. The Pharisees came to the wrong conclusion. They wanted to destroy him for what he was doing. Instead, we need to have faith in Jesus. Have faith that he is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the true rest. He is the one we go to to find true rest. There is nothing we can do to earn that rest. There is nothing we can do to earn eternal life or to earn a relationship with God to be restored. All we can do is simply believe and trust and rest in Jesus. So I'm going to 
go to another passage of scripture as we conclude this morning. We've got three conclusion questions, but in the midst of it, we're going to be reading quite a bit from the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians, I think, speaks to Jesus' supremacy over all things, not just the Sabbath, but I think it's a good reminder for us this morning. The first thing, as we go to Colossians, we're going to ask this question to all of us here. Have you, have I, have we recognized Jesus as supreme? Have we truly recognized Jesus as supreme? Maybe you're here today and you're living for all the wrong things or you're working to figure out how good you can be. If you're good enough, then you can get eternal life and you can go to heaven. That is not what Jesus calls us to. That is not what the Bible calls us to. You think that somehow you're the one that is supreme, that you can have the power over what happens in your life. But the truth of the matter is Jesus has power over all things. And so Colossians 1, 15 through 20 reminds us of this. Just follow along as I read. Talking about Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Today we had an opportunity to participate in the Lord's Supper, to take communion together as we remember the blood of his cross being shed for us. And in the midst of that, we see that Jesus is God himself. Jesus is preeminent over all things. He is supreme over all things, including uh, all man-made and thoughtful and all of our efforts. Jesus is supreme over all of that. And if you've not come to a place where you believe in Jesus and believe that he is supreme, that he is preeminent, that he is the one that you need to follow and you need to give your life to him through faith and believe and trust that indeed he is the one who is supreme over you and over all things, then today is the day that you can come to him and ask him for salvation, ask him to become not only first in everything because he already is, but to recognize him. As supreme. You see, whether or not we believe he's supreme or not doesn't matter. He is supreme. He is the Lord of all, whether we think he is or not. We don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord, but we recognize him to be Lord. And if you have not recognized that in your life, then you need to come to him and trust him and believe in him. And the fact that he died for your sin, that he rose again to prove that he had power over sin and death, and that the sacrifice that he made was worthy of giving you forgiveness and hope. And just putting yourself in the arms of Jesus because he is in control of all things. Trusting him with your life, you can still do that. It's not too late. Do it now. Because he is first over everything. We need to recognize that. The second question that as we go through the book of Colossians, big, a big chunk here, is are you striving for God's approval through outward obedience? Are you striving for God's approval through outward obedience? Pastor Justin talked a lot about this last week, but I think Colossians chapter 2 talks about how important it is that our life is centered around Jesus himself and not uh, centered around all the things that we do. It's a lengthy passage. Please follow with me. Therefore, in verse 6 of Colossians 2, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There's his supremacy again. In him you were, circum- you were circumcised with a circumcision made, with ha- not made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands." This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. And here we get to this last passage, in, in starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I know that was a lot of reading, and I really want to get to this main point as we see here in these last few verses. Because Jesus died and gave us hope and brought us new life and all of the things that we know to be true, as Colossians tells us, then we are no longer bound to have to have a list of do's and don'ts. That is not what knowing Jesus is all about. Why do you submit to regulations, we're told in Colossians? It says that you need, why are we going according to human precepts and teachings? They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. My fear is that many of us have made our own religion, much like the Pharisees did. This is where we get to the point of what they were doing. They were really making their own religion. They were making their own way to God. It was about do's and don'ts. Here's the list of things you do, and if you go too far, you're in trouble. If you don't go far enough, you're in trouble. You need to be perfect. You need to work out your relationship with God. And the the Pharisees were masters at creating a man-made religion, even though they said they were following God. The truth of the matter is, they weren't following God. They were following themselves. But before we get too harsh and hard on the Pharisees, I would hope that all of us would consider whether this is something we do in our lives constructing things in our lives that we are more concerned with what we do and what we don't do, how many times we go to church or give to church or how many times we do good to people or how often we serve, how often we do what is right, how often we obey the laws that are found in the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's not important to obey Jesus because it is. If we truly trust him and we truly put ourselves in his hands, then obedience will follow naturally. But I'm afraid that a lot of us, what we've done is we've constructed our own religion. 
to make ourselves feel better. We can just check off the check boxes in our life to say, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, I'm all good. All the while we are forgetting what life is all about, following Jesus and what he stood for, loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and realizing that he is preeminent over over us. And it's not about what we do or don't do. It's not about our effort. That's the key. It's about what he's already done for us, not what we do for him. Now, what he's done for us will inspire and, and change us. Jesus is the one who changes us to be obedient to him, but we don't do it in our own strength. I'm afraid that a lot of us are filling up on the snacks and not waiting for dinner. I'm afraid that a lot of us are getting bloated on bread because we're following all the things we're supposed to do. We're checking all the checkboxes, but we're not really knowing and following Jesus. We're missing out on the dinner. We're missing out on the great steak. We're missing out on Jesus because we're so distracted by our own effort. And that's the point of Sabbath. Not to get distracted by our own effort, but to be focused on God. And so we need to focus on Him. So finally then, what does that look like? Well, it's living a life of mercy over sacrifice. Colossians 3, 1 through 15. Colossians 3, 1 through 15. Are you living a life of mercy over sacrifice? If, Colossians 3, 1 through 15. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And Christ, who is your life, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked and were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Notice that the new life that is being talked about here in Colossians, the old life that has passed away as Jesus has taken care of it, leads us to a new life. But notice that new life is not a list of all the do's and don'ts, how much work you can do on Sabbath, all the all the individual commands that you have to obey, or it doesn't say, put on then as God's chosen ones a new, a new self, which is doing a bunch of good things, as many things as you can do. But it talks about our character of love, compassion, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, peace, harmony, love. This is what the heart of the gospel is, it's love, it's compassion. It's not about ritual sacrifice. It's not about rituals, but it's about Jesus. It's about faith in him. It's about following him. And as you do that, then yes, the old self will leave. The new self will come. Not because we have enough 
power in ourselves to bring out that new person, but that Jesus himself will bring it. Jesus himself will make us new. That is the hope that we have because we find our rest in him and him alone. So again, as a close, I want to remind us all, don't fill up on snacks. Don't be so obsessed with all the do's and don'ts and little things that you forget about Jesus. We were going to sing a final song because of time we're not, but I want to read to you the first, the first verse in the song, In Christ Alone. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. We think about the fact that the love of Christ brings us to a place where strivings cease and we can find hope in him and him alone. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had this morning. I pray that your word would go forth in a way that would change us, help us to see you more clearly, help us to not get bogged down in all the details and the little things that we forget to just love you and follow you and lean into you. Help us trust you each and every day. We thank you for what you're doing in us and through us, that you are creating us for a life of restful work, and we thank you for that. I pray if anyone here does not know you, that they would not leave today without seeing you and knowing you as supreme and giving their life to you. I pray that that might be the case. And help us all to live a life of mercy over sacrifice, a life in which we trust you and not ourselves. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't go.